I want to begin by telling you about a place at Yosemite National Park called Taft Point. A Taft Point is just west of Glacier Point, and it's a really dangerous place in the park. A lot of people will not go to Taft Point. And the reason for that is there's not that many handrails, but there's these giant cliffs and you can go right out to the edge of the rocks and stand. But if you lose your footing, if you slip, it's a thousand feet straight down. It's a really, really dangerous place. So it's already dangerous by itself, but then there are these people called slackliners and they go there on purpose and they make it even more dangerous. They take a slack line, which is this uh, piece of material about the width of the seatbelt in your car, and they string it between two rocks at Taft Point and they walk out onto it to see if they can make it from one side to the other. I was out there adventuring with my buddy Derek a couple years ago and we got to see some of these people slacklining at Taft Point in person and it's, it's amazing, it is breathtaking, but also at the same time you're thinking, wow, this is really kind of stupid. And if you're wondering whether Derek and I did any slacklining while we were there, the answer is no. Actually, it's an emphatic no. We did not do any slacklining, nor do I plan on doing any anytime soon. In my view, if you want to slackline at Taft Point, more power to you. But for me, it's too dangerous, it's too stupid, and frankly, I just don't see the point. Well, the reason I'm starting with this today is that Jesus often led his disciples into dangerous places as well. And one dangerous place we're going to see him leading them is Jerusalem. We're going to look at a text here from Matthew chapter 21, sometimes referred to as the triumphal entry. Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life before he went to the cross. So on Sunday, he enters Jerusalem, and on Friday, He's going to be crucified. We're going to take a look at this passage and then we're going to ask ourselves, why did he go to Jerusalem? Why was it so dangerous? And what does this mean for us today as followers of Jesus? Read along with me in Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. In Galilee. This might seem a little bit of a strange display. If you've been following Jesus in the Gospels, you'll notice he does a lot of things like teaching and healing, but this thing is new. And you may ask yourself, why does he go to all this trouble to get this donkey and to make this grand entrance into Jerusalem on this day? Well, 
in order to understand that, you kind of have to put yourself in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. So I want you to imagine with me that we are there, that it's, it's the first century, we're in Jerusalem, and it's the, the Passover week. Now we know from historical sources that the city of Jerusalem would swell from a population of 40,000 to a quarter of a million people during the Passover festival. And so we're there and we're there to celebrate the Passover and suddenly there's a commotion and people start talking and then people start running and we go, well, what's going on? Well, let's go find out. It turns out everybody is rushing over to the west gate of the city. So we rush over there and we see what all the commotion is about. And the closer we get to the west gate, the thicker the crowds get. There's more people. We have to start shoving our way through. This is very different than how we're living our lives, social distancing today. But hey, we're in Jerusalem now. It's the first century. There's a lot of people. It's really tight. And we're looking to try to see who it is. What is the thing that people are getting so excited about? And then we see him and we go, oh, of course. This is someone who is recognizable right away. As soon as you see this person, you know why we're gathering. This person is riding into town with glory and splendor and authority, and people are cheering for him, and everybody recognizes him. So we all know who we're talking about, right? Let's, let's say the name of this person together. Ready? One, two, three. Pontius Pilate. Right? That's the name you said, right? Is that who you were thinking of? Because this is Pilate. This is him coming into town. You might have said Jesus, but we'll get to Jesus in a second. Jesus entered Jerusalem from the east gate, but Pilate is entering from the west side. Now, every Passover season, the governor of Judea, and at this time it was Pontius Pilate, would enter the city. And normally the Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Why would he want to live there when he had a palace out on the coast at Caesarea? That's where he spent most of his time. But for special occasions like this, and when there's potential for Jewish fervor to be on the rise and a potential revolt might happen, Pilate would come into town with his soldiers and with his garrisons. And they would enter through the west gate from the west side in full regalia, flags blowing in the breeze. People would be cheering. You were expected to be there to pay honor to this Roman governor. Sometimes people would make speeches for Pilate and poems would be read in his honor. Here he comes. This was a big deal. So now, if you were someone who was in Jerusalem at this time, it may have been the case that when Jesus was entering from the east gate, Pilate, around the same time, would have been entering from the west gate. You may have had a choice on your hands. Go to the west gate and see Pilate, or go to the east gate and see the prophet from Nazareth. These two entrances were quite in contrast with each other. Pilate came from his palace on the coast, while Jesus came from where he was crashing on Lazarus's couch in Bethany. It's kind of like if you're making a family trip to Disneyland, but you want to save money on lodging. You don't stay in Anaheim. You don't stay at the Disneyland hotel. You crash with some relatives out in Garden Grove, and then you make your way in each day for the festivities. That's what Jesus and his disciples were doing there. Pilate comes in riding on a war horse, and Jesus putters into town on this little donkey making a mockery of the grand procession. Pilate knew that he had his soldiers with him, and if anything went down, he was going to be the last one to die. 
In contrast, Jesus comes into town and he is the one who is willing to lay down his own life. He is willing to be the first one to die if necessary. So we see following Jesus into Jerusalem, going to the east gate, laying down your palm branches and saying, Hosanna, he is the God who saves us, was a subversive thing. It was a dangerous thing to do. Why would Jesus do this if he knew that it was so dangerous? I think the reason for this lies in the heart that Jesus had for the city of Jerusalem. It was God's city. It was the place where the temple was located, where you could go and meet God, experience God, make sacrifices to God, and worship him there. But the city had been a corrupt place for a long time. Originally established around the year 1000 BC, under the reign of David and Solomon, the temple was supposed to be this great place of worship. But not long after the rule of David and Solomon, it became corrupt. It became a place that was characterized by what scholars refer to as a domination system. A domination system is a term that's kind of new to me, but it points out a concept that's pretty common and that you'll recognize as well. Any domination system is characterized by three things. One, it's political oppression. That is, it's ruled by a few people and they make laws that benefit them and they don't care about the common good of the people. Two, economic exploitation. This is the fact that the people who are in charge are also the ones who are drawing up the tax laws. And the tax laws, of course, are going to benefit the upper crust at the expense of the common worker. They were loaning at exorbitant rates, making it so that people couldn't own their lands anymore. Families were going into slavery. This was a huge method that they used to keep them in power. And the third characteristic of a domination system is religious legitimation. That's the attitude that says things are the way they are because God wants them to be this way. And both the Roman authorities and the leaders in the temple were practicing this domination system at this time. The temple leaders were going along with things and using that religious legitimation to say, hey, this is the way things are. It must be the way that God wants them to be. And the Roman leaders were saying, well, Caesar is God, so whatever he says goes, we're just going to go along with that. This was the kind of corruption that the Old Testament prophets decried from early times. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and Micah. Listen to the words that Isaiah spoke in the 8th century. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, and the widow's case does not come before them. So this is the Jerusalem that Jesus entered. And he rides into town and he says no to all of this. He comes in and he says, this is not God's will. This does not honor God. And by the way, Caesar is not God. He never has been. He never will be. And so with the authority of a prophet and the true priest and the true king of kings, Jesus comes to town and confronts the domination system. 
And that's a dangerous thing to do. And he knew that it was dangerous and he wasn't trying to hide that from his followers. On the way to Jerusalem, he told them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. As Christians, we might be familiar with that phrase. We hear that and go, oh yeah, take up your cross means following Jesus. Or in our, our common vernacular, we say things like, oh, this is my cross to bear to indicate a kind of suffering or a hardship that someone is going through. But in the first century, it had much more specific connotations. And when Jesus used this kind of language, his disciples would have understood it right away. See, a cross was a specific type of punishment that was given for a rebel. It was the method of execution that was saved specifically for insurrectionists and troublemakers and anybody who dared defy the authority of Rome. There was a revolt in Rome in 4 BC, and Rome squashed the revolt, and as a punishment, and to make an example of the rebels, they crucified 2,000 people publicly, just to make an example of them. So we hear all this, and we realize that Jesus wasn't crucified because of a misunderstanding. Jesus died because he poked the bear. He antagonized the powers that be. He challenged the status quo and he was given the standard punishment for it. Jesus coming to Jerusalem was antagonistic. Jesus staging a mockery of the triumphal procession at the East Gate was antagonistic. Jesus going into the temple courts on Monday and driving out the money changers was antagonistic. Jesus got in the face of the biggest bullies in the schoolyard and he did it on purpose. And we wonder why all of his followers abandoned him when he went to the cross. We read on in the Gospels and we'll see that Peter denies him. I don't know him. I wasn't one of his followers. And everybody else is scattered because they're scared. And we would be scared too. It's like Jesus inviting them to follow him to Taft Point and then saying, Hey, why don't you come out here on the slack line with me? And their response was, it's too dangerous. It's too stupid. And frankly, I just don't see the point. Well, that's us too. We are challenged by Jesus' call to follow him into sometimes dangerous places. We're in the season of Lent where Christians prepare themselves to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of times during Lent, Christians will do things like abstain from certain things that they enjoy, like give up chocolate for Lent, or they won't drink coffee during the Lenten season. And those are good. Those are good disciplines to practice because it prepares you for the things that Jesus will call us to as his followers. But sometimes I think that the things that people give up during Lent are just the luxuries, and we still get by, and we still live relatively comfortably. But following Jesus will sometimes mean giving up our own safety, our own security, and our ties with the way things are. Jesus calls his followers to go and pay allegiance to him at the East Gate, at the expense of snubbing those who are in power at the West Gate. I struggle a lot with this myself, the things that Jesus calls me to. And am I a comfortable Christian? Am I, am I following Jesus to a certain extent? But after a certain point, I'm not willing to go with him any farther. I was pushed pretty far out of my comfort zone a couple years ago. 
when I went out for some training. I went to the city of San Francisco to meet with a group called We Are Church, and they were doing this house church movement, and I, I went and spent a week with them, just learning their methods and, and shadowing them and seeing how they did what they did. The mornings, we spent time kind of in a classroom session. We would discuss things and talk about concepts. And then in the afternoon was experiential learning. We would go out and we would do some of the things that they did. And one afternoon, our leader, this big guy named Rob Zabala, he came to Christ while he was in prison. So he's this tatted out dude, real tough looking. And uh, he said, you know what? Let's go to Potrero Hill and just share Jesus with people. That's what we're going to do this afternoon. So he took us to one of the more rougher housing projects in all of San Francisco. And we're pulling up to there and you can see, ah, oh, this, is, this is kind of a rough neighborhood. And we're getting out of the car and the only training he gives us are two pieces of advice. And this is before he sends us to the wolves. First piece of advice was, uh, okay, so do any of you guys have a paper Bible? Oh, you got a paper Bible. Yeah, like, like one of these. Take this with you and kind of, you know, hold it in front of you. That way when you knock on their door, they won't think you're a cop. Okay, so take our paper Bibles with us. And the second piece of advice that he gave us was, you know what, if, if anybody tries to take anything from you, like if they wanna take your wallet or your phone or something, it's best to just give it to them. You don't, don't fight them for it, don't try to run away. You know, it, you can replace those things, but you don't wanna get hurt if somebody tries to rob you. Okay, go, share Jesus with people. And we went, what? That's all we get? Let's go out and share Jesus? I already had a chip on my shoulder about the fact that we were gonna be knocking on strangers' doors and just simply asking them if they knew Jesus. I was kind of past that. In my mind, that's an old-fashioned method. That's something that used to work, but people don't wanna to talk to strangers about their faith anymore. There's no way that this is gonna work. And now he's saying, you might get robbed, and they might think you're a cop, and there's Rottweilers in some of these apartments. So just, you know, do your best, have fun, go ahead. But we did. I spent the afternoon talking to people about Jesus and just off script, doing the best I could to share about this Jesus who knows them and who loves them. And most people said, yeah, 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 I know Jesus, just to make us go away. But that experience made me realize that there was a domination system in my life that I wasn't quite aware of. And that was the domination system of the kingdom of convenience. I was living my life in a very comfortable way. But then when I was challenged to do things that were new and maybe a little bit scary, maybe a little bit dangerous, I really didn't wanna do it. It made me realize how much I don't seek those opportunities on my own. And maybe we could ask ourselves, what other domination systems in our lives are at work that we need to confront the way that Jesus did? Maybe you're like me and you need to confront the kingdom of convenience. Maybe your faith is live and vibrant when everything's fine, but when things turn upside down or when you're called to be stretched or to put in a situation that you're not comfortable with, maybe it's a little bit scary and maybe you resist. Maybe for you, it's the kingdom of country, the domination system that says Christianity is the same thing as my political beliefs. And this political party exemplifies Jesus perfectly. I don't know that that's true. That's something that we may need to call ourselves to examine. It might be the kingdom of culture. It might be that you are a slave to a certain trend or style or a, a way of life that demands a certain amount 
of your expenses. The kingdom of culture is something that a lot of us just go along with. We go with the flow of the river and we wake up one day and realize, oh man, I'm not following Jesus. I'm following what everybody else is doing. Another domination system that could be at work in our lives and could especially be at work today, given the recent changes and the circumstances that we're living under, is the kingdom of fear. The kingdom that says, you should be afraid. You should be very concerned. Things are different. Things are changing. You should be scared. The things that you put your trust in are collapsing. Now what are you going to do? But the kingdom of fear can be a good thing. It can remind us that we don't put our trust in our money. We don't put our trust in our comfort or our safety. Our trust as followers of Jesus is in the fact that he came to Jerusalem and he confronted not just the domination system that was at work there, but he confronted the powers of sin and death. He went out onto the slack line and he survived. He was raised on the third day. And our hope is in that resurrection that he offers us as well. It's understandable if we're afraid during these times. I was watching a kid's video a couple years ago. There's this kid's program called Yo Gabba Gabba. It's basically like Sesame Street for hipster parents. I'm not really a hipster, so I don't know how we got a hold of it. But my kids were watching it, and there's this song about not being afraid. And one of the characters, Fufa, says to one of the younger characters, Broby, she tells him, I know you're scared, but you don't have to be afraid. When I first heard that, I thought, that's redundant. Being scared and being afraid, well, that's the same thing. But as I thought more about it, it's true. We sometimes get scared. Scared is the response to things changing. And a lot of us now are scared. But the advice she gives him is true. We don't have to be afraid. Scared happens, it catches us by surprise. Afraid is a state that we choose to remain in because maybe our priorities are mixed up or maybe we've put our trust in the wrong things. But I think that that's the message that Jesus has too. I know you're scared, but you don't have to be afraid. Jesus taught about a lot of things. The number one thing in the gospels that Jesus taught about was the kingdom of heaven. But the second thing that he taught about more often than anything else was not being afraid. He tells his disciples this over and over again. Don't be afraid because I am with you. And that's a good word for us today. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus conquered sin and death. We believe that Jesus was Hosanna, the God who saves, and that he confronted the domination system at work in Jerusalem. And he made a way for us to be saved. Jesus is our hope and our salvation. I want to end by praying for increased trust in him and increased courage for us to follow him wherever he might lead us. Lord God, I thank you for this word about Jesus and his courage, about Jesus and his trust in you. I'm so thankful that Jesus was willing to go places that I might not be willing to go. I thank you that because of his courage, because of his sacrifice, I can be saved just because I call on his name, just because I know him, just because we're friends. We celebrate that salvation this morning. And I pray for all my friends who hear this message, who might be scared, who might be thrown for a loop, 
whose businesses are uncertain, whose finances are uncertain, whose day-to-day -day operations have changed and they're not quite sure what to do or how to adjust yet. Lord, we lift up uh, our fear before you and we say, take it and replace it with your peace. Replace it with the hope of salvation in Christ. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm not going to try slacklining, I've decided, whether at Taft Point or anywhere else. That's not something that I'm going to aspire to do. It's not on my bucket list. It's not on any list. I'm just going to go on the record right now and say, no slacklining for Jacob ever. That's something I'm committing to. And the reason for that is because I'm not a slackliner. That's not who I am. That's not what I do. But I am a follower of Jesus. And so I need to take seriously his call to follow him wherever that may lead. And I hope that it leads us all into some exciting places where our trust is increased and we see the kingdom of God coming more and more. Blessings to you, my friends. I hope that you're well. I look forward to seeing you again.